0: My, my name is Michael Hands. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life, and I've been on holidays for the last three weeks, and it's been a blessing to be back. I was with Stu and Sue Cameron last weekend, um, the, the former lead minister of New Life, and I just said there was this change in my heart where I, I was excited to come home. I don't know when you reach that point on holidays. be like, I'm ready to come back. I miss my community. I miss my family. So it's great to be with you all today. And for those of you who are here for the first time, um, or it's your first time in church, thanks for rocking out. Rocking up on a Sunday. Thanks for coming along. And whether you're a follower of Christ or you're not a follower of Christ, you are so welcome here. You belong. You don't have to believe what we believe to be able to be a part of our community here at New Life. Amen? amen. Fantastic. That was, that was more to the Christians to join with me in saying amen to that. It sounded like it was just Bradley who, before, was anyone else concerned that Bradley was stealing a child <laughs> before? As He was actually going to his wife, Cheryl, who he was just over here, who, who wanted to see the child. Just in case you're wondering, Bradley's amazing. Moving right along. Friends, today we're in week number nine, week nine of our series in Ephesians. Some of you are here for the first time and you're like, they've been doing the same thing for nine weeks. Holy smokes. This is the longest series we've ever had as a church and I'm excited by it. Now, to give context to today's sermon, I need to read the passage in full. And I want to just couch with this. Maybe you'll hear saying you're not yet a Christ follower. And you're going to hear some things that may be confronting in this passage. I want to let you know Paul is writing to Christians. And so if you're not yet a Christ follower today and you're wondering, oh, what does this mean for me? I want you to observe as, as an audience, what, what is God saying to Christians more than what is he challenging you on necessarily? So join with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. The Apostle Paul continues writing to the Ephesians church. He says, therefore. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God and beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper amongst the saints, let there be no f- uh, f- uh, filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving and life. You may be sure of this: that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous—that is, an idolater—has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of Christ and God, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bradley. Once again, friends, would you join with me? There's a lot to cover today, and I need some help. I need God to move in our hearts because more than you need to hear from me, we need to hear from God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, there's, there's heavy stuff in this text. There's light stuff in this text. But mutually, we all need to know what it means to look more like you, Jesus. Father, the world doesn't need more of Michael. The world doesn't need more of us as individuals. We need to know more of the grace and love of Jesus Christ. So reveal that way to us today. Holy Spirit, may there be less of me and more of you, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. When I first met uh, my wife, Sarah, who was at that stage, not my wife, Sarah, she was Sarah Turner, uh, I was driving a 1984 single cab Hilux flatbed ute. It was a beast. It was my mighty steed. It was around 2011. So this 1984 single cab Hilux flatbed ute was actually more of a death trap than it was a chick magnet. But I found out that this young girl had started coming to church named Sarah Turner, was really attracted to guys in utes. So I dished out $1,100. I bought this thing that I thought would be amazing. Turns out this, this Hilux ute that I bought might have looked cool, but it had no uh, airbags. It had no air conditioning. It had no stereo system. I'm almost fairly sure it had no suspension. And it had no power steering. Now, if you don't remember what it means to have no power steering, it means that every time you go around a roundabout, you're having an exercise on your traps and your tries, especially in Rabina, which is the international home of the roundabout, which is horrible, which is where I grew up. So here I am hauling this thing around, rocking up to church and trying to wink at this girl without looking creepy when I rock in. And she finally agreed to go on a date with me. And I thought, this death trap isn't going to be good enough. I need to fix it because it would take five minutes to even start the car. So I'm like, I know what I can do. I'm going to put carpet in the tray. So I carpeted the tray. I then had one of these. I don't know if you remember, but you used to be able to put this cassette in your car and then there was a cord that would attach to your ipod player and so i did that so now i had music and then the seat was cracking and it was leather and it was old so i put a towel down and i'm like she won't know what's hit her this is amazing or if she does it'll probably be me losing control of my power steering in that moment and i rocked up and i went to my first date with this beautiful young lady named sarah and on the way there my car broke down and i had to call sarah and be like hey um this is that guy that's meant to come pick you up. Are you able to pick me up at all? I'm just a hungry jacks. So she came around and picked me up. And I'm like, oh, i would be fine. So next time around, I went and I fixed the car with my mate named Dave, and, and it was ready to go. And I picked her up, and I'm like, she is so impressed that I have carpet on the back of this thing. It's phenomenal. We went out on our next date. It was great. But I remember distinctly the day that Sarah broke my heart. Um, I rocked up at her house in my ute, and I said, hey, sweetie, you can hop on in. And she goes, oh, can we not take your car tonight? I'm like, what do you mean, can we not take my car? She's like, oh, could we take my car? I'm like, why on earth would we take your car? She says, well, I mean, it has airbags, number one. I'm like, but mine has carpet in the tray. And she's like, that's not that impressive. And then eventually she's like, listen, I don't actually feel safe. If you're going to date me, then I'm going to now start to drive. So for the first six months of our relationship, my wife Sarah drove me around. In fact, we found out she's a better driver than I am. So pretty much for our whole married life, my wife Sarah drives. But what was the problem? The problem was that what my car needed was a new engine, and what I did was put in new carpet. What my car needed was a new operating system, and what I did was kind of try to fix up the audio sound system. I made these cosmetic changes, and then I'm like, why is it breaking down? It's because it didn't need a towel on the passenger seat. It needed a new alternator. That would have helped. And the reason why I say this, friends, is because this is so often how we approach the Christian life. Instead of coming in a way where we actually say, hey, God, what I need is a new heart, we, we actually come before God and we're like, hey, God, just just change some of the outward stuff. Make me look good. Make it seem like I've got everything together. I'll attend church, I'll pray a little bit, I'll go to a small group, but, but don't change too much because that'll cost too much. Uh, just change the easy stuff. Put carpet in the tray. But see, good guys, the, the good news of the gospel." The good news of the Christian faith, and if you're here for the first time, you've never been in church or you've been away from church for a while, Let's you know this. The good news of the gospel isn't that you have to be perfect to be a Christian. Isn't that you have to have a certain morality or behavior system before you can come to know Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that right where you are, Jesus steps in and loves you and forgives you and invites you into his family. But not so that he can make your life better. It's so he can make your heart new. And this is pivotal. But too many times, we as Christians live in a way where we just want Christ to tweak our life rather than transform it. And there are non-Christians in the room today who know exactly what I mean. Because the confusion that the world has with Christians is that we look nothing like the Savior we profess. A guy named Gandhi, I don't know if you've heard of him, lived a little while ago, said this thing. He said, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. Because your Christians are nothing like your Christ. Now, this, this can be hard for us to hear. But even in more modern times, a guy that wrote, writes to the San Francisco Herald says, the problem with born-again Christians is that they're even more annoying the second time around. <laughs> now you might be like, not me. Ask some of the non-Christians in your world what they think of your faith. And so today, friends, this is why I say maybe you are yet someone who... who is is not yet sure they want to follow Jesus. I just want to say thanks for joining us today. But I want to talk to those of you who are followers of Jesus. So if that's not where you're at, lean in. Listen to the life that Christ calls Christians to live. See what the beauty is Because the message that Paul writes isn't to a non-believing people. It is to a people who have said, God, give me a new heart. And Paul in this passage says, let me tell you what it means to have a new heart. Last week, Tim uh, kind of emphasized that the heart of our church is not to become more like Michael. It's to become more like Jesus. This is why Paul in the book of Ephesians says this, put on the new self that Christ has for you. Walk in self-righteousness and holiness. Now, unfortunately, when we hear that we're called to be righteous and holy, we think that what that means is that we're meant to be weird, that we're meant to look like Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, wear a turtleneck, and say, hi, diddly do, neighbor, whenever we see someone in the street. And we're like, why is everyone run away from me? It's because you're freaky. Christ has not called us to be weird. The Holiness isn't weirdness. Holiness means that we have been set apart, that we're meant to live a way, not that condemns the world, but that offers a different narrative to the world. A.W. Tozer says it like this. He says holiness as taught in scriptures is not based upon knowledge on our part, rather it's based upon the resurrected Christ indwelling us and changing us into his likeness. Friends, in my experience, the world has a lot less of a problem with Jesus and more of a problem with Christians because we aren't actually saying, "Hey, I want to look more like Christ." And so today what Paul does is he gets intensely practical and he says, hey, let's actually talk through what it means for the gospel to give us this new life, for us to actually walk in a new way. So what does this look like? As Timothy, Tim, Timothy, I call him Timothy sometimes. As Tim said last week, Christianity isn't just a way to life, it's a way of life. So what is this way of life? What is this new self we're meant to look for? Paul steps into Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25 and he says, therefore, put off now we when paul gets a bit direct he's like therefore you must put off we're like where do you get off paul telling me what to do like hang on why are you telling me to put off stuff what paul is doing here is it's all nice and well for us as a church to be like we're all about becoming more like jesus but unless we actually talk about what does it mean to become more like jesus everyone has their own ideas of what jesus is like And so what you get is not a unified body of Christians. You get a group of people who seem more schizophrenic and different than they do like reflecting their Savior. So Paul gets specific. He goes, you want to know what it looks like to walk like Jesus? Then there is stuff, he says, you need to put off. There's stuff that's not the way of Jesus. And there's stuff you need to put on. There is stuff that is the way of Jesus. And he gets real clear. He says, therefore, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of the one body. Paul says, put off lies and put on truth. Pretty easy, Michael. I don't actually lie that often, just so you know. Like, I'm pretty good with this one. Um, I don't really lie, and that thing that I said wasn't really a lie because I just didn't share the whole truth. We start to justify. What does it mean when Paul says, put off lies and put on truth? Well, I actually thought... I'm nailing this one as a Christian. Until I went and researched on the internet the most common lies that people tell each other. And I'm like, oh, I'm not actually doing too well. We actually find that most common myths, truths, and falsehoods that represent happen in text messages. The most common lies from a, this is a secular researcher, someone who's not a Christian, said most people have used these lies more often than not once a week. For instance, we don't always tell the truth when we text something like, I'm on my way when we're on the couch. I'm almost there when we're plugging in directions into Google. I literally just saw a husband get nudged by a wife. I never got your text when really it was, I'm not organized enough to have responded to the text that I read, but I turned off read receipts, so we're fine. Hey, we should catch up for coffee sometime, which really should be, I'm trying to end this conversation right now so I can go home. (laughs) And we never get that. And friends are like, oh, I don't have a problem with lies. So we're like, Michael, why is that an issue? Psychologists actually suggest that when we actually begin to practice bending small truths, we become desensitized to lies and we are unable to distinguish between what is a lie and what is the truth. Instead, we decide the truth is whatever serves my own interests. And Paul says, no, no, not, not here, not in the Christian community, not in the way we live. He says that to lie or have a falsehood is when we live in a way where we communicate or live with deceit or intentionality or intentionally communicate a false representation of the truth or reality. Or someone says, how are you going? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. And that's not real. There's a falsehood there. We infer, he's inferring that the way of Jesus is to move away from falsehood and into a truth. Why? Because he says, when, when, when you live falsely, you harm the other members of the body of which you're a part. See, falsehoods or lies destroys community. It's insidious. It breaks it down. What Paul is doing here is he's casting a vision. that says, hey, the world should know that Christians tell the truth. Now, I want to, I want to be clear here. The truth sometimes needs to be separated from your opinion. Sometimes you're like, well, I'm just trying to tell you the truth. No, you're trying to share your opinion. The truth is when you reflect reality well, is when you own what's actually going on, not for someone else, but for you. What would it look like if this church, if these people, if we were a community, if we were agents of Christ, where people knew there were no masks with us, that we, we, there wasn't a false pretense? What you saw is what you got. What would it look like if when we rocked up there were no false motivation? That someone would know that when they talk to Michael, what I say to their face is the same as what I say behind their back. Friends, this would be a loving balm to a world that is shouting fake news and false lies every single second. We can be a people who choose to inhabit the truth that we can control. Why? Because we serve the way the truth and the life. His name is Jesus and truth is deeply central to who he is. A culture of deceit, lying and falsehood is one of the things which breaks down Christian community because friends, God can't bless who you're, disp- or who you're pretending to be and God can't direct a path you aren't really committed to walk in. The community of God was meant to be a place where people not only pursued the truth but committed to speak it and live it well. Friends, is there falsehoods you're inhabiting right now? Paul says, put, put that off. Put on truth. He goes to the next one. And he says, this, the second thing we want to put off is, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. What's Paul saying? He's saying, put off rage. But interestingly, he does say it's okay to put on righteous anger. There seems to be a distinction there. Now, for some reason, Christians have this Ned Flanders image to the world. People think we wear turtlenecks, we drink tea, and we're really lovely, calm people. And we think that that's what it means to be a Christian. But what Paul seems to insinuate here is Christians should get angry. Now, some of you are a little bit excited by that, but but let me explain. You see, Jesus got angry. In the Gospels, there's a moment when Jesus walks into the church back in his day, the temple in Jerusalem, and he sees that there are people who are robbing each other of money through corrupt deals, that there are people preventing Gentiles from coming to know the grace and goodness of God, that that men and women are separated separated. It's like it's a broken system. And in this moment, when Jesus steps into the temple and sees that people are falsely representing of God, that his house is not a house of prayer, but a house of thievery, he steps in there and he goes, Peace be with you all. Love and goodwill to all mankind. No, he doesn't. He grabs a whip, the Bible says, and starts turning over chairs and driving people out. He says, this shall not be a den of thieves, but a house of prayer. Stop being hypocrites. And everyone's like, whoa, who's this dude who's beating people up because they're getting it wrong? Now, here's not the example. I'm not suggesting in your anger you should go and grab a whip and turn someone's table over and beat anyone up. But what I'm suggesting is there's a form of righteous anger that seems to be okay. When is it okay for us to be angry? When we identify things in the world that are not in the will of God. We should be angry at sin that hurts us and hurts others. We should be angry at injustice. That right now there are kids in sex slavery in factories and in workshops overseas, this should anger us. We should go, "This is not OK. We should be angry at moments when the world is out of line with the heart of God." See, the difference between righteous anger, righteous anger and rage is often its motivation. Righteous anger is rooted in the loving concern for how things should be. Rage is rooted and motivated by pride, spite, malice and selfish intent. A good example of rage that Christ is not caused to have is how you feel when you get cut off at the roundabout. Now, some of you are like, that's righteous anger. When was the last time your honking, your finger waving, or your words actually changed someone else's driving ability? Usually, it's because you got thwarted your intention or you feel hurt or slighted. In fact, as you know, 45% of Australians have confessed that they struggle with road rage. One in 10 of Australians have confessed that they have tried to, attempted to, or have successfully damaged someone else's vehicle because of road rage. That's one in 10 of us, friends. Find 10 people. One of you have done this. Why? Because this is a moment when we allow our anger to be a reaction out of emotion rather than a response to what is not right in the world. Friends, we get angry about all the wrong things. We need to get angry around the things that are close to the heart of God, to injustice, to things where, where there's inequality, where there is pain in the world. What is, what is leading your anger today? Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This doesn't mean that we should move to Greenland in the summertime so we can be angry all day long because the sun never sets. It means kind of have, have, a, have a time where you actually got God I'm angry about this, but but you know what? I submit it to you, that, that only you will be able to see what is right here. Rage is rooted in the wrong thing. Anger is Righteous anger is rooted in love. Glorifies God because it's driven by the love of God. And righteous anger will drive you to pray and engage. Rage will cause you to react and respond out of revenge. What is leading your anger today? Paul goes on, he says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. This is another one for many of us. We're like, oh, that's cool. I haven't stolen anything from someone in a while. So tick, I did that really well. You know, I I mean, I I stole the mint from the person next to me earlier, but other than that, I've done really well. But what ends up happening is that we have a false dichotomy here that what Paul is saying is that the way of the world encourages you to take what you want And then the way of Christ is to just not take what you want. But what Paul says here is he says, put off theft, but put on generosity. See, the opposite of stealing for Paul isn't not stealing. It's radical generosity. We live in a world that is being broken by consumerism where we are actually stealing resources from communities, from other people, because we live the mantra too often that says, I should have whatever I desire. And what the Bible seems to insinuate is the way that we actually can combat greed, consumerism, and even the thief of of corruption is not by not doing it. It's by working hard that we might be able to create more margin so we might be able to be more radically generous to the world around us. Now, this is actually a little more challenging When we actually like, I didn't steal, yes. But are the labor of our hands being motivated by the radical generosity of the gospel? This is what we see in the story of Zacchaeus in the gospels. Zacchaeus was a corrupt tax collector who was stealing from not only friends, family, but everybody. He just didn't care. Then Jesus rocks up to Zacchaeus and and no one wanted to hang out with Zacchaeus. No one liked this guy because he was a corrupt, scum of the earth kind of guy. And Jesus turns around and goes, Zacchaeus, tonight I'm eating in your house. And this radical acceptance and grace inclusion of Jesus, which, note, happened before Zacchaeus changed. He didn't change and stop being a tax collector or or being corrupt. Jesus ate with him a sign of grace. And out of this moment, transformation took place. And what does Zacchaeus do? He radically goes. He doesn't just give back what he owed people. He gives them even more. Because response to the radical love of God no longer says, it's all for me. We go, God, it's all for you. How can it be used to bless others? Put off. Put on. Put off lies. Put on truth. Put off rage. Put on righteous anger. Put off this sense that it's all for you. Put on radical generosity. Paul goes on and he says this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. We all say on average about 7,000 words 7 to 2, to 20, sorry, between 7,000 and 20,000 words every day. That's a big average gap. The reason is, is because apparently, one gender says 7,000 words on average every day, and the other gender says 20,000 words on average every day. Now, I'm not gonna tell you which gender is which. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and tell them what you think, and if it's your partner, good luck to you on that one. I actually think that I speak about 50,000 words a day, which like kind of heightens us a bit, but the idea behind this is that we're all talking so often. And the question I'd ask you is if we were to place a tape recorder around your neck and record what you said in a day, what would we hear? Maybe what would we hear texted? What would we hear emailed? Malice, anger, gossip, hurt, whinging, foolishness, encouragement, life, empowerment. The Bible is very clear in James chapter 3. There's no gray area with language. It says to the Christian, hey, your words are either building up or they're destroying. And in Australia, we've become so flippant with the language of our mouth. We think sarcasm is a national pastime. Now, I know that because I'm a naturally sarcastic person. You've heard me talk about this before, but I've never had anyone leave my company and go, man, I'm so thankful Michael was sarcastic today. Wasn't that lovely? Oh, you know, I, I learned the power of words when I was in school. Because when I was in school in year eight, I played rugby. And I know what some of you are like, man, you look like you owned the rugby field. Shock, horror, friends. I wasn't very good at rugby. I know. You're amazed. But there's this sense when I was in school when um, I would have friends around me and, and uh, they weren't really friends. They, they, whenever I rocked up to rugby practice, guys would say, oh, left, right out's here. How do you feel being the bench warmer again this week, Michael? Yeah, it's so good. In fact, whenever they shouted out Falcon, it meant that it was ball coming from my head. So I just got really good at ducking when everyone said Falcon. I hated rugby practice. I hated it because I was so defined by the words until a coach, a man named John Fife, came along and he stood there and he said, Michael, I know everyone thinks you can't. Let me tell you something. You give your best. I will actually make you to a better rugby player. I believe in you, mate. Let's go. And suddenly I stood a little taller. I went out on the rugby field, got absolutely pummeled and failed at it. Came off and he's like, let's go again. Stood a little taller. The words of one man saved me in year eight because he chose to speak words that built up or destroyed. Friends, how many words do we speak flippantly and carelessly? There is a world out there of non-Christians who are surrounded by words of comparison, of words of judgment, of word of condemnation. When they encounter a follower of Christ, the first words of our mouth should be words that uplift and build up and actually lovingly encourage and overwhelm them. Friends, what are the words of your mouth? May we put off corrupt talk and put on building words of life. And then Paul gets a little little serious. Most of you will recognize what Paul is describing here as the Christian community. He says, put off lying and put on truth, and we'd all go, that seems like a really good idea. He says, okay, put off rage and put on self-righteousness. Okay, that seems like a really good idea. But then he gets a little bit more personal. He goes on in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 to 5, he says this, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. Because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place. But rather, thanksgiving. For this you can be sure: no immoral, impure, greedy person. Such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And we stop there, and we're like, Michael, I brought friends to church today. Why are we talking about sex? Some of you only just started listening. And I want to be clear today, the ethic that is unpacked here is is an ethic that that Paul is writing to the Christian church. So before we look out at the world, I would love us as Christians to look at our own hearts and our own lives. Because what we end up saying ultimately is something like this. In practice, many of us have become Christian sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them or us on that subject of any consequence, or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade us from following their own course of conduct. It is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believes that they are in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them in all things, also believes that this God should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living. And there is a world out there who have made their own decision on sexual ethic. And can I say that the only thing that a world that disagrees with us sexually should hear is the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Because what Paul is calling the Christian church to is to be the example, not the voice of condemnation. And this is so critical. Because Christians, before we look out at the world and start telling the world who should get married and who should be having sex and who shouldn't be, we should first be ensuring that our hearts and our lives are in line with what Christ has said. And often what we do is we're like, I love Jesus. He forgives all my sins, but do not touch what I get to watch on television. All right, I know what it does in my heart. Yeah, I know, I know that the porn industry is actually more oppressive than almost any other industry in the world. But do not tell me about what to do there. Like, God, you have everything, but don't have the privacy. Don't teach me what my heart can fantasize and not fantasize about. Or we even separate the fact that sexuality and greed are together here. We don't actually ask God and go, God, uh, either of you is present in my life or in my world. Friends, I've not come today to actually explain why the Bible says what it does about sex. What I'm trying to highlight here is that there is a new way of life that you would have to be some kind of superhuman person to have read this text and gone, I'm nailing every part of this. This should be a moment where we're all like, this is difficult. In fact, in both services today, when we've gone into sex, it's been very quiet. Because we don't like talking about this stuff. But the reason why Jesus does is because I believe that Jesus doesn't see sex as gross or disgusting. I believe that the Christian faith is, actually says sex is sacred and it's holy. That unlike... Other faiths or other, like other worldviews, sex is not a natural appetite that needs to be fulfilled. Sex is not an animal instinct that should be responded to. Sex is not a repressed creativity and expression of our individuality. Sex ultimately should be a selfless act of giving in a lifelong committed relationship between two people that points to the love and grace and goodness of God. And when it's outside of that, friends, what we end up doing is take something God meant for holy and we, we kind of, we debase it. And the world is confused. Why we're more concerned about what they're doing with their sexuality than we are by how we're living with ours. And I just want to encourage you today that maybe God wants to redeem how we see some of this stuff. Because Timothy Keller says sex is one of the most powerful, um, one of the most powerful tools God created. It's one of the most powerful God created ways to give your entire self to another human being. It is a way of expressing I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. Now, you might be here today and you might agree with that you might not agree with that. In fact, you might be sitting here today going, man, flip, Michael. I brought friends to church and literally all you've done is say, don't do this and do this. And that's literally all they've ever heard the church say. And I don't think they're coming back. If you are new to church today, I can't just say, there is absolutely no one in this room that does any of these things perfectly. There is not one of us today who is living completely and perfectly the perfect life that Christ has for us. And so what is the point? Is this today just another to-do list? Was today just another thing that the church has given us, that religion is just a cludgeon that we beat each other over the head with? God, be better, do more, strive. No, the first thing we should recognize is that there is a way of life that, that Christ has called us to put off, and there is a way of life that Christ has called us to put on, and that we should ask ourselves how we're doing with that. But right in the center of this text is the key, I think, that Paul is trying to highlight. Paul is not trying to necessarily convince you of an ethic, but he reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 of a person who is present in our moment. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, right in the center of everything that's going on, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. See, what I find, actually, the point of what Paul is saying is you weren't meant to be perfect at it on your own. You weren't meant to be good enough on your own because Christianity is not a a, a thing that's about behavior modification. Just keep shifting and changing. Keep putting new carpet down and installing a new system. Christianity is not about behavior modification, friends. It's about spiritual transformation. And what we do when we struggle with some of this stuff, we're like, God, I don't know if I agree with the sexual ethic of the Bible. I don't know if I agree about rage and self-righteous anger. What we do so often is we run to the world to find someone that will agree with us rather than coming to God and saying, Holy Spirit, I need you to talk with me about this. I need you to walk with me about this. Because Paul is clear, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever grieved someone? I do. I'm terrible at responding to texts. And sometimes I'll come across a mate and I'll be like, hey man, how are you going? He's like, how are you going? I'm like, whoa, what's up with the anger? He's like, I've been texting you for like three months now and you haven't responded to any of them. I keep, I keep read receipts on, on my phone as a way of um, telling people when I've read the text. But what it's actually ended up being is people get even more angrier that I haven't responded. And I realise in that moment, what I've done is I've grieved this person because they've been trying to communicate with me and I've just been ignoring them. I think grieving the Holy Spirit is when we ignore him. Is when we ignore the Holy Spirit, God Himself, who whispers to us, "Hey, listen. That's not true. That, that that's probably a bit deceitful. I don't want you to walk like that." And we're like, shh shh, "Shh, shh, shh, shh." I want you to talk to me about my finances, not about my lies. And when 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 we feel challenged, what we do is we we kind of like, "Ah, oh, no, 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 God, don't touch that part. I want you to put the carpet in, not, not change the engine." And then we come to church and we're like, God has never spoken to me. God just doesn't, I, try, I say, God, speak to me. Hey, I want to talk to you. Better. You're like, shh. No, 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 not that. This. And Holy Spirit's like, I mean, if you don't want to listen, then we don't have to talk. And I just wonder, friends, is that grieving the Holy Spirit, J.D. Greer, is when we actually say no to Holy Spirit. Is when we actually begin entertaining the very things that Christ went to the cross to save us from. Eugene Peterson actually unpacks this text, and it's so beautiful. He says this, don't grieve God. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Here's what the world needs. The world doesn't need a perfect people. The world doesn't need a, another you know, incarnate Jesus. We already have one of those, but the world needs a people who are honest enough that says, I don't have it all together, but they don't use that as an excuse. They go, but I'm working on it. The Holy Spirit and I, we're partnering in this. And every day I wake up and I say, Holy Spirit, what do I need to put off today? And what do I need to put on? Holy Spirit, when I'm watching TV, what should I be entertaining in the pits of my heart? When I'm flicking through Instagram or the internet, when I'm talking with someone in the courtyard, Holy Spirit, have a voice in that. And friends, I guarantee you, you'll start hearing the voice of God when you become more ready to listen to what he wants to talk to you about, not just trying to seek what we want to hear. Why? Because God is not trying to hurt us. He is far more committed to your flourishing than you are. He created you. He loves you. He predestined you. And He's watched you walk away from Him your whole life. And He goes, Listen to me. I want to teach you a way of flourishing and a way of goodness. I want a relationship. And some of us today have turned down the spirit, the voice of the spirit, so much. It's time for us to pause and recognize it's not that he's quiet. He's just waiting for us to listen. This is why it says in Ephesians 5 verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What's the Holy Spirit's motivation? The Holy Spirit wants you to look just like Jesus. Because our world doesn't need more Michaels. Amen? That was a trick. And Brad got it wrong. No, amen. The world needs more people looking more like Jesus. A Jesus who went to the minorities, who went to the ostracized, went to the outcast and loved them. Friends, what is the Holy Spirit speaking in your life today? Here's what I want to do as the band comes. I want to pray. I want to pause for a moment. How beautiful it is having babies in church. Amen. Parents should not feel like they need to leave to say, dude, dude, that's so great. Oh, no, you, you, yeah. (laughs) I don't know what the right choice is right now. (laughs) Nailed it. This is what I want to do. I want to create a moment for the Holy Spirit to speak. And maybe you're here today, you don't know Jesus, and I've said stuff, and you're like, I hate religion. Can I just tell you, the truth of the gospel is not that you need to look like anything before knowing Jesus loves you. This is the truth of the gospel. Wherever you are at, with your sexual ethic, with lying, with anger, whatever that is, guess what? Right now, Jesus loves you. Right now. Not before you've changed the engine. He loves you so much that you can trust Him to work on the engine. And I want you to know His love is so full for you today. That right when you walked in, doesn't matter what you think of church or Christians, Christ thinks the world of you and wants to call you home. There are some of you here today who you've been walking the faith and walking through Jesus, walking with Jesus for a while now, but you've not been listening to the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're wondering why it's so hard. Can I suggest maybe it's time to start listening to the voice that wants to correct some things. It's going to cost a little. It's going to hurt a little, but it's going to run better. The great engineer came to fix the engine of our hearts, so I want to create some space for that today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? And I'm just going to ask... I'm going to say, Holy Spirit, what are the parts of our life that you're wanting to speak to us about? More than we need to hear from Michael, we need to hear from you. God, there's some of you here today who need a new engine, who we've been walking in the way of the world. It's not working for us. We keep breaking down and we're trying to put carpet in, audio systems, we're trying to fix the cosmetic stuff and it's just not working. God, we need you. I pray right now, Holy Spirit, in this moment, just tap, tap those people in the heart. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Some of us here today, we're, we're, we call ourselves Christians, but we're not living the way of Christ. And, and maybe, maybe it's just time. For us to go, Holy Spirit, what are you highlighting in my life? And I just want to, just with every head bow your I want to just remind us of this, this sense to, God is not calling you to do it in your own strength. He's not saying, go be better or else. He's saying, hey, partner with me. Let me teach you how to walk this walk, how to walk the rhythm of grace. Do it in my strength. Let me transform the heart. So just with people's heads bowed and eyes closed, what I want to do today is I just want to um, provide a moment where those of you who are saying, you know what? I need a new heart. I need a new engine. I've been walking the wrong way. I'm broken and God, I need forgiveness. I need to let you know that before you act like anything, right where you are, God loves you as you are. He wants to forgive you. He wants to wash you clean, give you a new life and offer you a new opportunity with Him. Before you've worked any of it out, He calls you home. Says, come, repent, turn and follow me. If that's you, friends, if you're you're sick of breaking down and you're ready for a new heart, wherever you are across the room, I want to ask you something courageous. If that's you today, you want to turn to Jesus and follow in the new life He has for you. Wherever you are right now, would you stand to your feet? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Guys, just the people standing, just with every head bowed, every eyes closed. You guys have so much courage. Just wait a moment longer. And if you're a section leader or a pastor or even just a Christian and you're near one of these people, why don't you stand with them and just just stand with them in solidarity? Wait a moment longer. There's some people. Thanks, guys. Guys, if you believe in in Jesus and your breath and your lungs and someone's standing around you, just go stand with them. It's fine. And the reason why we do this, I heard a pastor once say, hey, what we're not willing to do in the light, we're not going to be willing to uphold in the dark. And so we, we make a public declaration today, just some of us, that we need to start following you, Jesus. And so all of us today who have made this declaration, who said, "God, I'm not perfect, but I need a new way, a new heart, and you stop breaking down, Lord, I pray you will wash us clean with your forgiveness and your love in Jesus name. If you're standing, I, I would love to lead you in a prayer that every Christian in the room is going to pray, and we're going to declare it with you. Would you repeat after me these words, "Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin and my shame. I need a new heart. Wash me clean, make me new, teach me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, I thank you for people who either pray this prayer for the first time or the second time again today, and they're just saying, God, I want to follow the new way of life. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. We join him with heaven, and we celebrate these decisions in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Friends, would you, everyone, stand to your feet with me this afternoon. That would be fantastic. There are people right across this room who stood, but I pray we'd all stand in solidarity because what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song. And this song is called Open Heaven. And the bridge just goes like this. Come Holy Spirit, burn like a fire. Renew me, restore me, refresh me. What a prayer to pray as we finish today. May we be a people marked by the presence of God, walking in the way of God, that the world might not see us. The world might see Jesus. Let's sing together.